So we're back at the flat here in London and return to the kitchen. This is the Travelling Through Podcast, where we talk about London, the world and life. I'm your host normally, but today it's me in the hot seat and I'm being interviewed by my partner, Stephen Marriott, who is about to set up his own podcast series called Marriott's Side Trips. This is a test for him and also for me. I hope you enjoy. We did a kick off this interview with earlier, but you got all excited about the snow. We went to our local park. We did, yes. And uh, yes, crunched with the snow, had a few snowball fights and warmed up back here with some coffee. And what coffee is it, Emma? Do you remember? This is a Mexican blend, I think. It's an organic coffee. And um, actually, it was a Christmas present, so I can't remember exactly. But it is delicious. It's, well, it's that, a I'm going to pour some light, for you. but like fruity flavour. I think it's great to have some coffee this afternoon and perk ourselves up, but, but also because I think it ties nicely in two ways into the fact that I know a kitchen is an important place for you. It is. And you are a coffee barista now, aren't you? So you ground this coffee up for us. And obviously, in your bookshop stroke cafe, Travelling Through, you learnt the skills of coffee grinding and making a decent cappuccino or latte. Uh, so I think it's just really nice to just tell us a bit about why kitchens are important to you and what you know about coffee now. And I should say for everybody out there that people may not know that Emma is also my partner. So she's a little bit on the spot here and I'm going to hopefully learn a few things that I have never had the chance to ask her about in terms of her past life. And, you know, obviously some thoughts and different things which we never get the chance to talk about which are going on in our head. But, uh, yeah, I'm intrigued just to tell me a bit more about why kitchens are important and uh, this link with coffee and travelling through. Okay. Um, It's also nice that we are sitting in the kitchen because the kitchen is one of the rooms in the house where I always feel the most relaxed when it comes to having conversations. And this goes right back to childhood. We always had our family powwows, discussions, chats, laughs, cries in the kitchen. So for me, it's very central. And it's also, I think, a very Irish thing, which my mother, being of Irish origin, although she she didn't live in Ireland, she was brought up in London and, and in India as well. But the kitchen was always very important in her household. Um, so we just grew up always, even if our kitchen is small, wherever I've lived in London or around the world, it's always been the kitchen has been the central point of discussions, disclosures, um, <laughs> whatever it is, and parties. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. The best parties always end up in the kitchen. I don't know whether that's the same for you, but it certainly Aww. has been the case for me. I do know you like a bit of kitchen dancing now and I again. Do. Absolutely. And, uh, we did do a bit of that, didn't we, on New Year's Eve here in, in the kitchen when, like a lot of people, there were no parties to go to <laughs> this year. But that was great. So, yes. Yeah, I, I love that fact that it's, it's, it's about a sense of place and family for you by the, yeah. by the sounds of things. And, and food and also it's cooking yeah. where people can relax, have a cup of tea. One of us might be cooking, but you're having a chat as well. And in terms of the coffee, yes, I mean, the smell of coffee in, in the kitchen is also... It just, it's it's a feeling of home, isn't it? It's a feeling of whether... Or tea, in fact, it's mm-hmm. exactly the same. And um, the coffee skills... I drank quite a bit of coffee when I lived in the Balkans. And that's a very, very strong coffee. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to the UK in 2012, it was suddenly the coffee scene had really taken off in London and I really was very much aware of it and then opening my bookshop and the cafe 
that's when I really learnt the skills of being a barista. Not to say that I was a very good one, but I, I learnt a lot from it. And in the ten- types of coffee, how you have to keep the coffee machines clean to get the best flavour, how you grind the coffee, the different grinds. It's a huge skill, and I think a lot of people drink wonderful coffee without actually realising how much goes into creating that perfect cup of coffee. And it is quite difficult to keep consistency, but that comes down to how the beans are also not only ground but how they how they're roasted so the, from the roastery so there's a there's a big thing behind behind it all but i find that fascinating and it's been great that although the bookshop now doesn't exist mm-hmm. i've kept the grinder the coffee machine unfortunately was far too big to keep so i sold that um so at least we can grind our coffee and we we put it just through a french press but it's still it creates a lovely a lovely coffee so and I have to say thank you because I've been a big beneficiary of um, <laughs> you your um, coffee experiences. So cheers to that, Emma. I'll raise my cheers. mug here and chink yours. Um, yeah, well, obviously, as you say, with the coffee grinder here, and, uh, you know, you taught me how to grind coffee. And so it's always a privilege to get in nice quality beans and, and grind the coffee and have that sort of ceremony um experience i guess um and of course i've been a beneficiary that when you did have the physical location for the for the, the cafe and the bookshop that um i would sometimes write or in the bookshop or yeah, occasionally yes. uh, be your assistant and, and help out and uh, yes i was paid uh in lots of no, not cafetiers lattes, uh, lattes and, <laughs> and uh, cake and cake yes um, glass of wine. Uh, and mm. a glass of wine obviously you moved on for the bookshop and i want to come back to that mm-hmm. and um and what took you from the balkans to the bookshop later but I, I guess um what's really interesting is just to get a bit of a snippet as to what you're up to at the moment and I know you've you since at least uh it was last April you started your own podcast show which is almost a sort of evolution of going online with traveling through bookshop and other things well for those who don't know um I had a bookshop in in behind Waterloo station for for five years and it was a it was an amazing experience Financially, not an amazing experience, but I think booksellers and book owners will, will uh, nod and understand that situation. However, it was a very rich experience in so many other ways. And one of those ways was the fact oh, the community really came together and I met so many local people mm-hmm. in the Waterloo SE1 area. And they used to come in sometimes just to say hello or have a quick cup of tea or a coffee or came to the events in the evening. And... A huge spirit, travelling through spirit, just grew or blossomed, I should say, in those five years. And there were were a lot of people who were regulars. There were people who were literally just travelling through, had come from abroad. And it was that real sense of mix of cultures, languages, people, experiences, travellers. So much kind of knitted together in the shop. And this spirit was something that I, I felt an affinity with and felt very strongly to try and keep going, even though I didn't have the physical bookshop. So when I closed, um, many people were saying, well, what was I going to do next? And the idea, eventually, is to have a place somewhere abroad, which is a continuation of travelling through, but in a very different guise. But obviously we've had lockdowns and coronavirus and various other things getting in the way. So in the meantime, I thought another way would be to capture people's experiences of living in London, the travelling through shop, insights into how they see the world and life through a podcast. I've initially just focused on people who came to travelling through and has had 
some kind of connection with me mm-hmm. um, and just trying to keep that those links alive and um, I, I'm delighted because in the last I think it was last week uh, end of last week uh, I reached over 2,000 downloads so I'm not a, I'm not a Joe Rogan podcaster yet but um, it's still lovely that it's being supported and listened to so that that's been one of the the focuses while I closed down because obviously I closed down the shop um, well obviously but it was summer 2019 but it took almost four or five months after that uh, to the end of the year of 2019 to get everything finalized and the accountants doing their stuff closing the company the company's house selling up coffee machines coffee (laughs) machines and all the all the rest of it so 2020 was last year was really when I took stock of everything and thought right let's do this podcast and of course then we've been very much restrained as to what we can do so I've just carried on with the podcast where I can interviewing people uh, I think to date I've only done one via zoom but I think at the moment that may be what I'll have to do for the coming months but we'll, we'll see mm. um, and also now that I, I have done almost a year as a as a podcaster I've kind of seen the way the podcast is going and I'll be making some alterations to that going forward so it's nice that well nice but slightly strange that I'm now in the podcasting guest seat so I now know um, how they feel rather than always being the host so um, I think that's really interesting what you talked about the community and, and spirit of traveling through mm. as, a, as a mm-hmm. physical shop and location and as well that's very important everybody has a kindle who loves books but obviously for me you never replace the physical feeling of that sort of coffee stained book that you know becomes a bit of a friend sometimes and goes with you everywhere whether it's on the train or at home or in bed and so I love the fact that um, a community spirit was created there at traveling mm. through and um, and it hasn't been lost because of your podcast and it's evolving now yeah. and um, uh, I know that your book group who a lot of people from the Waterloo SE1 community now they've taken that online via zoom etc and yeah. so they continue to meet in that in that way and hopefully they will go back to being a local community book group in due course when, when they can that, but oh, sorry you're gonna, you no, were no, gonna no, say i was gonna say that's that's true i mean the, the fact is the book club continued and that was my big surprise is actually when the shop closed the book club continued face to face for the following six months it's oh, eight months before in fact the first lockdown and then they said well we can't just stop we've got to keep going so that's why they introduced zoom chats and I've attended a couple of those. But um, I mean, in terms of books as well, just what you were saying about the, the well-worn books. And mm. But it, what's so nice on for books also is not only the books that are your friends that you may read over and over again. There are also those books that are very special books that are, I don't know, in a very um, a place in the bookshelf that's harder to reach or a bit more protected <laughs> that you take down now and again. And they're the very special books that you almost treat with just very carefully. So there's two sides and, and the way the books are going. And you're talking about Kindles. And I think a lot of books have become a lot cheaper. But on the other side, there's a lot of books that I would rather give a book to a friend for Christmas or yes. for birthday. And that's very important. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think books, the meaning behind books and the way we treat books may change in the future they'll become almost like special gifts i don't know but well uh, yeah I, mean, I think stories people we all we all love stories podcasting and people's personal stories their journeys fictional stories stories will never be lost will they 
it's just the way they're presented. Exactly. Um, and I still, for me, the, the physical book, and as you say, that special book on the bookshelf, which, you know, there are some books which you just return to in life for whatever reason, when you need them as a, a reminder mm-hmm. or they just take you to a place. I think there's something that, that, that's something special when you reach for that book in that in that sense. Um, you're saying about the community yes. of the bookshop and the friends or the people you've met in that community. And of course, we met over five years ago now through the bookshop. We did. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting that, you know, your bookshop has been a connecting point for so many people mm. and for us. Yeah, nice, nice memories. Yes, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But we can't talk all about our past lives. We're here to talk about about you, um, which of course is not past life is how we got to here now. But I want to know, yeah, talking about sort of where one is now, and I know you grew up in Edinburgh and Scotland, and you have done lots of different career things, as a, um, which we'll come on to, including living overseas in the Balkans and, and France. And now you're here at the moment in London doing podcasting. You've had the bookshop. Did you envisage having this kind of life when you were uh, a young girl in Scotland and growing up? I don't think I really knew what I was going to do with my life, if, if truth be known. I don't think that many many people do do really know, do they? I think they have, uh-huh. they have sort of daydreams and, <clears throat> and those sort of things. But Growing up, I very much had my head in the clouds. I ran around a lot, climbed trees, played a lot of sport. Um, I didn't, I suppose the the quick answer to that question is, no, I had no idea. (laughs) Um, um, And um, at one point, I wanted to go into forestry. Okay. My mother was so horrified at the thought that I wanted to be. She just saw me as a lumberjack or something. (laughs) She said, absolutely no way am I going to allow my daughter to go into that. That's a ridiculous idea. And at the time, I... I didn't really have the, the strength of character, shall we say, to, to uh, put my foot down and say, I will do that. And um, and how old were you then, do you think, when you thought you wanted to go into forestry? Which is interesting, 17. I think, outdoors and yes. nature, which I know you love nature. Yeah, 17. 17, okay. So, yeah. So I suppose that was one thing. I also had a, or I still do have, a, mm. my godfather was in Australia. So that was always in the back of my mind. I wanted to go to Australia to see to see him. I didn't know when that was going to be or whatever. But apart from that, yeah, I had no, I had no real idea. I think for a couple of years, I was a bit, when I was 18, I felt a bit trapped, but I didn't know how to get out of that trap. And I think that's all part of your growing up, but you, you don't know how to grow, you don't know how to get away from, you don't really know what the problem is at, at that point. Okay. And I, I was never... I was never a child that shouted and yelled at people and had a furious temper or stormed around. So I, w- I wasn't quite sure how, how, how my life was going to change. I knew it was going to at some point, mm-hmm. but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get there. I did think by the age, I mean, I was only 18 or 17 at the time, so, yeah. but I thought by the time I was 27, which actually was very old, I felt at that time. Um, I would probably be so, so not when you were 27, you thought... No, you, you thought when I was you, 17. You thought by the time I would be 27. I was 27, okay. I'd probably be married and on the way to having about four kids. Okay, so, that, so that, that idea had, that, 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 oh, yes. yeah, had yeah. gone through your head at some point. Yeah, you it did, okay. yes. But, yeah, um, but <laughs> life got in the way of all of that and that didn't happen. But no. But I, I have no... Uh, je ne regret rien, as they say. Yes. Um, and no regrets because... That's the course life mm-hmm. took me down. 
and um, not to say that at some points I thought that might happen, it could have done, but it didn't, and destiny, or whatever, fate, whatever you want to call it, had other ideas for me. Sounds not to me that you didn't have this uh, desire, you knew you wouldn't stay in Edinburgh by the, by the sounds of things, although it sounds like quite an idyllic childhood, you know, out, outdoors, running around, and, and, and things like things Yeah, like that. cycling down to Cram, but and you I didn't... had a sense, of, I was given a sense of freedom, and my parents were very... They weren't controlling like that. I mean, you had to be home by a certain time, but during the day I would just say, I'm off for a cycle ride, and they would never say, well, where are you going, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. I'd just go. And, and sometimes From I'd Edinburgh? Go... Yeah, yeah, in Edinburgh, and you yeah. just cycle off, and because um, we, we lived in various places in, in Edinburgh. And, um, yeah, we'd just disappear. Okay. <laughs> just go off cycling and, and exploring. And I suppose maybe that's the early early days of me going off by myself and exploring mm-hmm. um, so when you say explore, sort of places that you can so you just take yourself off on your bike and yeah. go for little micro adventures. I would, yeah. yes, okay. exactly. And then obviously when you leave school, that it changed a bit, and I had to think about what I was doing, and I had no idea, and I wasn't allowed to go and and learn forestry. So and my mum said, "Well, you should go and do a secretarial course," and I did. I followed what she said. Um, In London. No, in Edinburgh. Oh, in Edinburgh. Okay, yeah. you did the secretarial yeah, course. I, I did. didn't know that. Uh, okay. For about a year, learned how shorthand and typing. And okay. Hated every moment of it. Didn't talk to my mother for the whole year I was doing it because I blamed her for for. Putting so you me didn't to go do on it. to do a degree then. That this was after what you called the hires, was it? In, yeah. Uh, in school. Yeah. So after your A level equivalent. Yes. Exactly. Right. Okay. So it sounds like secretarial work really wasn't for you, given your reaction to your mum. <laughs> no, it. No, it wasn't. But having said that, I'm very grateful to to her that I did it because it actually gave me a whole heap of skills like um, uh, how to use a keyboard and how to do shorthand and how to do how to shortcut certain things in in life actually. Okay. So it was actually even though I hated it at the time horrendously and and I worked for a, a company in, in Edinburgh for a short period of time it was also it was a stepping stone for yeah. me to go to London and to do just contract secretarial work um, and then eventually I joined a um, account, an accountancy firm in graduate recruitment so it it was um, it was a skill and if, if anything that's something I've I've learned that that's Sometimes the skills that you really think there can't possibly be um, any anything to come out of it. Uh, when you start to think sideways, you realise you can use skills mm. in in other ways. And it for me that was that was a salutary lesson, uh, as or humbling lesson as well. That that um that actually. It allowed me not only to go to London and then get a job that was paid double what I was earning in, in, in Edinburgh, but it also gave me the chance to save money and then to go travelling. And as a result of having those skills while I was travelling, I could do contract work. And so I could know I could, could travel for a while, stop, work, earn some more money, save money, and then do another bit. But at the time, you know, like all I could see was I hate doing this. But even though I hated doing it, in me is always a sense I want to do it to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. So I still still did it well, and and I was good at it. It was a challenging time, but 
but it paid off really. So mm-hmm. I have I have no regrets about it again. And did did though <laughs> my I mean, poor mother just <laughs> suffered. My, I had my hands and yeah. not wanting to talk to her. Well, I mean, obviously, it, it gave you administrational skills, organisational skills, and transferable skills to other jobs to travel. Which I think probably one of the reasons also is because I had my heart set on going to college or going to university, like quite a few of my friends were doing. Yeah, and and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But then. As it turned out, it just wasn't the right. It wasn't the right time no. because that time did come along later f- for me, um, but on my terms and on, on something that I wanted to study and I knew yeah. I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, it, life has a pattern that a lot of people follow, and they think, well, you go to school, then you you have a year out, then you go to university, then you do this, then you do that, then you get married, then you have kids, and then the cycle mm-hmm. continues. And when you interrupt that cycle, it almost puts you on a different path and and as a result it makes you think very differently to, to other people around you and I, yeah. I that's something I suppose I've just I've realized that uh, and in the end if you want to get on the same path as everybody else you can do but you've also been offered an opportunity to go down a, a different path and it's how you then view that path as something that is an opportunity or as um, a rejection or a um, um, so something that makes you not be accepted. Do you see mm-hmm. what I mean? You can because you're you it makes you different, and it's then how you how you view that difference as being something to your advantage or being something uh, negative. And it's it's um, and I learned that that was something that I learned very early on, I suppose. Sometimes you actually end up not liking yourself because you feel you've been pushed down a path because you weren't strong enough mm. to stand up for yourself. But at the same time, I did go down that path. I learned a lesson and I also learned then how to, how to stand up for myself and to start to have my own opinions about things. But it must have been intimidating when you first came to London, um, you know, fairly young still, not having been, a you know, sort of leaving home in the sense when you're a graduate you ease yourself into it because you're often you're with other people in the same boat you're in halls of residence etc was it an intimidating experience um i don't know arriving off the coach or bus in london yeah i mean yes it was very intimidating because uh, you know edinburgh at that time in the in the 70s and 80s was is, is not the city it is today it's, okay and i was very green between the ears in many ways <laughs> And suddenly I was thrust into the city life full of um, so many things, sights, smells, people, cultures, opportunities. You don't know where to look. And, and also so many people just having to stand on your own two feet and do everything for yourself. It was a shock, but you know, it's, it didn't take long to, to find, it, find my feet. And I wasn't totally alone because my cousin on my mother's side who was brought up down in England she just moved to London I shared a flat with her and a couple of other people above a pawnbroker's shop okay what, what, what part of London was that <laughs> in um it was in Fulham at the other end of the Doors Road near, okay near Lily Road and uh yeah above this pawnbroker shop <laughs> you ran down the floor was slanted <laughs> such that you ran down towards the the, the stove and um, we had a our door was uh, bedroom door was was a padded studded door. And we had this, <laughs> oh we had this, above a, a pawnbroker. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We had this. We had this 
little radiator with one bar that heated the room so we didn't have radiators or anything and it was so Gosh. cold on, in winter it was really really freezing in fact I set fire to my dressing gown one, one night on this radiator but it was electric one you just plugged it in but you know, it was it was a start it was all I could afford at the time and yeah. I had to find a job and just temped for a couple of months I think and then and then got a, a full-time job with this accountancy firm for 18 months and then I thought right got enough money I'm out of here and that's when the, that's when I thought right I'm going traveling the trees were still beckoning the trees the, oh, the trees, trees. Yes. The, 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 uh, the world was beckoning <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> beyond the trees yes. so Australia is where you headed next it was. It was a, It was a via roundabout route. It was one of these trail finders, round the world tickets. Okay. Very exciting. So going through Canada, across Canada, down the west side of the States, to um, Tahiti, then to New Zealand, then to New Caledonia. New Zealand, we were there for, I was traveling with a, another friend at that point. We stopped there. We, we did... Um, I didn't do secretarial work there. I was was a chambermaid and washed <laughs> washed dishes at a place called Edgewater Resort in Wanaka, for those who may know the South Island in, in New Zealand. And that was enough to pay for us our ski passes to go skiing. And we used to hitch a ride up to the ski fields. Oh, and people, we, we were staying with this family and they had boots and skis our, our size, so we didn't wow. have to hire skis and boots. And it was a fantastic time. A sense of freedom as well, mm-hmm. uh, which was... And fun. And then from there to New Caledonia for just a few days, actually. So not for very long. And then to Australia. And by the time I got to Australia, I was stony broke. So I had to work. So, yeah, I started working. All the savings had gone from the 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 accountant and uh, there's other temping jobs in London, etc. And, uh, yeah, okay. And how how long did you travel for before you arrived in Australia? So it was probably... About three or four, five months, I think. Okay. Yeah, and then arrived in. So that in was Australia. kind of that was backpacking, broken up with um, the, the the job in New Zealand and yeah. chambermaiding and things. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. We spent quite a bit of money in New Zealand actually, <laughs> <laughs> just just enjoying life really. Yeah. It was yeah, but it was fun, and then got to Australia, and then you got, you're paying rent, so you can't, you know, if all the money's going towards paying rent. You've got to have something coming mm-hmm. in. So then that's when I started doing secretarial temping. I worked for AMP right on Circular Quay, right on the harbour front. Wow. Yeah. and um, So in Sydney, yes. In Sydney, yes. Yeah. So Sydney became my base for wow. quite a few months. And those skill, administrational skills were coming back to help they you did, then? They did, came back. I mean, a lot of people did fruit picking and stuff, but I didn't need to do that because Gosh. I earned more doing... doing um, Working at an investment um, insurance company yeah mm-hmm. yeah and then i got enough money collected enough money together and then went around australia for about i don't know six months i think took my time was that more backpacking or did <laughs> you back- oh yeah backpacking, backpacking all the way and you just met so many people on on the way um australia is a huge huge country and we just everything doing everything by the um by the bus the old uh, greyhound bus toured around australia and then came back to sydney worked again to get myself back home. So I was actually away for almost two years, about 20 months, I think. Wow, I mean, okay. So nearly two years. Yeah. Oh, so Proper travelling, as they say, backpacking and well, living in, in a few in a couple of different places. Yeah. Obviously Sydney. Went back through the Philippines 
and went to Hong Kong, China, and then flew back from from Hong Kong to London. So I missed out on, originally the ticket was going to take me through Thailand and India, you know, the usual ticket, but Mm -hmm. I actually sent those parts of my ticket back because I was having such a good time in Australia. I'd met an Australian guy at the time, so I ended up staying there for for, um, a lot longer than I had initially thought Mm -hmm. I would be there. Yeah, so India, India, I still haven't been to. It's wow. on the list. But Thailand, I have since. You know, they say you haven't travelled until you've been to India, or properly travelled. So, apparently, you you know, yes. we will have to go there. And, I, I uh, think so. And especially as my mum was born there, it's another reason yes. to go. Yes. Well, it's, uh, it's an experience, and I think, but I know you'll thrive, you'll thrive in it. <laughs> I probably will, hopefully. <laughs> and and um, so Sydney and Australia, could you see yourself returning there and living there? Um, as one says in doing this interview on a day that it's been snowing and it's cold yes, and you yeah. know short January days still here in England you know I I loved I loved Australia I loved mm-hmm. Sydney and I love the people um, I love the lifestyle but I think it's changed quite a lot I, I did go back to Australia quite a few times uh, since then I've been back two or three times to different parts and I've always loved going there but I've never see myself living there full time for forever even yeah i think i think i mean it's an interesting question where do you want to live and even living in london yes. you live you live where where your community is where your where your where you feel most comfortable where your tribe is is the is yeah. the trendy way to sort of you know so the, I, the, the, the people use these days exactly and i mean wherever my tribe is that that is a moving feast in itself and I feel wherever I live in the world, I adapt. I find I adapt very, very quickly to wherever yeah. I am. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily ever believe I'm going to be there forever. Okay. And I think that's probably, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I envy, in some ways, people who who find their place and they're, they, they're very comfortable there. They have their community and they don't seem to want mm. anything else or anything more. Um, and I, I, and as we you know anybody that knows us or, or as we sort of suggested that even here being both of us having lived in London for a long time I mean we I think we both feel this is like an interim yes, thing yeah definitely yeah and it but the thing is it's also not really knowing where is next but you yes. know it when you get there and sometimes mm. you've got to go and do a bit of exploring till you find where you feel where you feel comfortable yes. and where you feel is home forever how long. You, you need you to play, don't you? Travelling yeah. is playing in many ways, I guess. And, you know, you played with Australia, I, I guess. And you need mm-hmm. to play and come alive and explore and experience, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I have it in my I have in my mind a place that I haven't yet been to. And it's a place that has somewhere that I can cultivate with fruit trees and olives or... Or, or nuts trees or and and you know that can be so many that can be so many places in the world and a stone house either on one level uh, and there's a lot of sunshine and there's not a lot of mosquitoes <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the place I'm searching for somewhere in the world that place it exists I know it does but I haven't I haven't found it not that I've I've actually been looking for it specifically but I know when I find it, 
I want to be there. Sounds great. Can I come? Of course you can. Oh, it's kind of fantastic. <laughs> Let's pack our bags. But the thing is, we'll go to the airport, we can't go anywhere at the moment. Right, <laughs> you, a need a, a you need a good reason. We do. Moving, I think, is one of them. Moving and emigration, luckily, is one of them. So, yes. yes. So, we'll, 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 we'll see. But uh, So, Australia and travels for around 20 months. And then you, you return to London? Am I right I in saying that? London. I return to London and I... Got a job with um, a travel company that's, that <laughs> okay. that actually that actually organise events for orchestras and choirs and um, oh, big groups of people going to different parts of the world. But I did that for for three or four, maybe six months, I think, and then I realised this isn't what I want to do. And at that point, I just decided it was time to do something different and. I have this. I had this real. I have this real urge to do up houses and get involved in the cultural heritage world. I didn't know how I was going to do that, but so I phoned the National Trust up and I said, "Do you take on people and train them how to get involved in um, doing up old houses and buildings and stuff?" And she said, "No, no, no. You have to go and do a building surveying degree." And I went, "Well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> that didn't exist when I was at school." Uh, and uh, she said, well, go and have a look at the universities. They'll be recruiting and see whether you can get on a course. Come back to us when you finished. And that's what I did. Wow. Gosh, career beckoned. A career beckoned, yes. <laughs> so I wanted to mix things up a little now, Emma, as I think uh, uh, good, to, good to just uh, take a slight sidestep. Okay. What are you reading at the moment? Ooh. Good question. Um, I'm not reading a fictional book. I'm reading a non-fiction book uh, by Dr. Stephen Gundry. Uh, it's called The Plant Paradox 30, I think. Uh, and it's all about a change of lifestyle in terms of the, kind of the foods, I'm, foods you mm-hmm. eat um, and in relation to um, diet. Not, not diet as in, t- in terms of losing weight, but diet in terms of the balance of eating more green leafy vegetables, uh, less protein, less sugars to help with feeling tired, run down, in the world of, of so many new modern diseases, including cancer and um, autoimmune diseases. I'm just interested in how this may affect me and, and whether it helps me feel better in life. And it, so far, I, I did the 30-day programme back last October, and it was great. It was just... It, it had a huge effect on me, and I've, I've carried on with it. So now I'm interested in reading more of the background behind his his ideas, but also exploring more about other people who he also has connected with about this whole lifestyle change of, of how we eat foods and, and that link between how that affects your gut um, and microbiome, which is now the such a catchy word in, in mm-hmm. 2021. It seems to be, everyone's onto it. Yes. yes. Including me. Including but thanks you. to you. <laughs> yes. And, yeah, and I'm, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm the second book I the longevity one now, yeah. which is goes is a lot more um, into the science behind the, the the first book, which is more kind of quick quick action thirty day program, as you say. But no, I'm you know I'm I'm feeling benefits. Um, definitely lost some weight, mm-hmm. and my acid reflux is gone. Didn't need any of the medicine and drugs which are prescribed by the the, the health professionals. It's gone with diet, and uh, I was a little bit apprehensive um, with the diet because it it seemed sort of initially quite um quite harsh but it's not as you as you go through it but it does require some 
a little bit of change with diet, of course. Just quickly, can you tell me um, what you drink first thing in the morning and what do you drink on an evening? First thing in the morning, first of all, it's a glass of hot water. Okay. Uh, with a bit of cold in it so I can drink it easily. Mm-hmm. I usually have that with a vitamin C tablet. And then I have a couple of black coffees. And then in the evening, I, I drink hot water as well, or cold water, and uh, have a glass of wine, two glasses of wine maybe. Yeah, which I thoroughly enjoy with my meal. <laughs> well, that, yeah, luckily, he, 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 um, Steve, Dr. Stephen Gundry in his books, he, he endorses red wine. He does, because, um, yes, the polyphenols. Yeah, so alcohol in that sense is, is good. And uh, as I say, I was a little bit apprehensive with some of the diet because um, he's a big advocate for removing grains, isn't he? Um, yes. because of these proteins called leptins and they're prevalent in, th- in things like beer for example and I like beer and real ale but red wine is a, is a nice substitute so yeah, yes. and obviously it goes well with food yeah no definitely actually what surprised me is that you've you haven't drunk any coca-cola since since you started good point and I was a massive coca-cola um, um, fan addict <laughs> yes I was so yeah so sugar's been cut down because of that and yeah I think I have more energy but it's it, it is definitely with um, weight I can I know I've lost weight and back down I think I'm back down to 10 stone now which is my sort of been my fighting weight for most of my um, adult life so <laughs> so that's good so we're going to come on to your career um, but you, you know you're, you're someone that's done things a little sort of backwards round front um, in that you went to university later and went yes. into the working world earlier um, so I, I was just wondering how would you describe yourself as different to sort of your peers or your, your associates or people you worked with I mean would you describe yourself as different your, the way you think or, or what common piece of advice do you disagree with people or you worked with okay. or associates yeah interesting um I don't think I've really ever thought about it that much. I just I've always just gone on with with my path, and um, I know I've done things upside down and back to front. And um, but I think it hasn't affected where I wanted to go. If I've wanted to go in a certain direction, I've tried to work out a way to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always been open for th- for for things. I've never I've never seen everything anything as being forever okay uh, I think that's probably based on the number of ex- experiences I've had in, in my in my youth and growing up mm-hmm. so I've always had my radar up and my peripheral vision is quite wide so although I'll be very focused on on projects when I do it and I love a challenge and I love no. to succeed <laughs> I've noticed I love to I really like to get my teeth into something mm-hmm. and I will give it my all. But then it's also knowing when to stop, when, when, if the challenge is too big or you've reached it and know when to let go and say, okay, this doesn't have to be forever. There are other things to do. And have you experienced that in the workplace where you're perhaps, um, as you say, feel a bit more open about things or you know where something seems that there's a challenge but you've you've or you know you haven't as you say you haven't seen a, a say particular you've looked at a project in a different way because you haven't seen it as, as being permanent mm, okay I mean when I when I first started even doing my doing the building surveying degree I, mm-hmm. my mum said to me I was struggling in the first year because everything was new learning how to do design um, draw and all technical drawing and everything it's something I'd never done in, at school or anything okay um, 
and and I remember saying to me, you can you can always you don't have to do it. You can always stop. For me, that was like red rag to the pool. <laughs> it was like, no, I'm not going to stop. I want to do this. It's a challenge. It's hard, but I'll find a way. And I suppose that's always been my my attitude. And and working then as a building surveyor in in what was in the early nine or mid nineties and probably and still is but it's becoming more balanced is, is a very male dominated uh, world although in conservation building surveying there's more women in, in that field that was quite that's quite tough and just your relationships in, in that in that world uh, in a kind of multidisciplinary field and that was a real lesson on being a woman in what was considered or what is considered still very much a man's world, although it, it is changing quite cons- mm-hmm. considerably now. And then I had the opportunity to go to to the Balkans, which I mean, I I mean, talk about baptism of, of fire going into a world which is very um, very macho, very male dominated, and I was heading a team that was at the beginning all men uh, from different. Uh, sections of, of, of society and different cultural and um, ethnic backgrounds and that was that was incredibly challenging but also very humbling uh, so I've never been afraid to take on a challenge and I think you just have to go with your go back to it all goes back to your gut <laughs> your gut feeling on things <laughs> and also gut. knowing <laughs> knowing when something isn't right and knowing mm. when to say okay let's just bow to this one gracefully. I've mm-hmm. done what I can and never see it as a failure, just see it as part of that learning experience and, and, and moving on. And treating everything that, I don't know, oh, everything we do in life, we have successes and we have failures and it's, it's, a, it's being able to see what you recognise as a success, somebody else may not, but it's your life only you can lead it and in the end it's it's how you feel about it and forget how everyone else may react to, to certain things mm, nice answer thought-provoking thank you i like that so i'm glad you um brought up the balkans because that's what i wanted to actually ask you about next emma and um i believe it was kosovo where you were first based when you you went out there i mean obviously we touched on the fact that you you did your career late, and eventually, obviously, the degree took you to the Balkans mm-hmm. um, with uh, your heritage surveying work. Yes. Um, but how did you balance your lifestyle and living in Kosovo with that work? Because I know you, you know, we all know we we're learning that you love travel. So blending those two worlds or separating, how was that? Um. I think, I'm, you know, even now, I left in 2009 from Kosovo. I was working there, but I was also working in other Balkan countries at yes. the time. Um, and then I spent a bit of time in Bosnia and, and Sarajevo for uh, about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm still processing that whole, <laughs> that whole period because it was so intense. I mean, they'd been through a war. Yeah. Um, there's ethnic divisions there is also this amazing sense of um, community in the Balkans and during and then there's also this the when I was there the international environment so you had uh, the UN there the Council of Europe were there 
OSCE, all these institutions that mm-hmm. I had never come across that were explained to me as acronyms. To begin with, I was totally over my head in terms of all that learning curve, learning all these all the, and NGOs from all over the, the Balkans too. So although it was, you, you were dealing with um, or working with individuals, locals from, from each of these countries, mm-hmm. you were also working with people from all over the world. And yeah, it was, it was a very challenging, humbling and a privilege really to, to, to be able to have that opportunity to be in that kind of environment. But I, yes, I am still processing it and because it was so intense. And I think also that you know, there, there had been, there was a lot of politics going on. There, there was so much going on. I, will, I think what I need to do is write it down at some point. I, I, I wrote various, at various times while I was out there. But in the end, it became so intense I couldn't, I couldn't even write it down. So what I did do at the end of my, of my working stint there, it, it was, yeah, 2009, so it was kind of like five years all in, um, working in that very intense um, sort of international environment, shall we say. But, sorry, just to interject very briefly, just, just to um, so, so people understand, obviously I know, but the, some of the projects you were working on were... Well, there were, all... were um, uh, historical buildings, yes. Yes, so it was all to do with um, post-conflict conservation work yes. and helping uh, um, or working with the institutions, uh, the different local institutions, on creating priority lists for for um, rebuilding or restoring or preserving you know, all these different words that come into cultural heritage, um, whether it's important municipality building buildings mm-hmm. bridges uh, the vernacular you know like the houses um walls it, it is it's not just looking and, and churches temples you know mm-hmm. mosques everything it's it was looking at all kinds of architecture from from something very small to something huge um and defining the criteria for how, how you prioritize because it's I mean it, it was huge for some of the for some of the countries it was a mammoth task and having done that it was then creating pilot projects where money could be used to restore or just protect certain buildings um, and then work with the institutions on how to how they could then find funding for bigger projects to to then do major major works and I was involved specifically in a, in a project in in Kosovo um, which was very challenging but also very rewarding in some ways and and I learned a lot it was very humbling I learned a lot about communism mm-hmm. because they they had all worked under and had been brought up under a communist system generally and here I was with my European views and they were at this crossroads of, of having to to embrace a European approach without necessarily understanding it. They were learning it and at the same time for me to, to work with them I had to understand the communist approach because without understanding where they were coming from it was very difficult to, to communicate in a way that we both understood one another. 
So I learned so much from from that experience, um, and I still stay in touch with 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 other people that I work with. For us, because we're all still processing yes. that experience. Um, but what I also learned from it is that in the end, you you are an outsider. You're there to help where you can. But it's very easy, and I saw it a lot where people took over and thought that they knew best, being an international, being mm-hmm. abroad, mm. feeling that they had more experience or a better understanding of what they thought should be done yeah. without really taking into consideration the people themselves. And that, that I found quite frustrating at, at times. But all in all, it was, a, it was an, in, an incredibly yeah, humbling experience and privilege to have have done that um i'm still processing it yes yeah no, no. what was the um experience of touring around uh, the balkans after your your your, your projects had ended and you you, you know you, you had um stopped working for the council of europe part of that processing or was it more just just for the experience of travel I think it was a bit of both. I'm sorry, I'm just sorry, I'm interjecting again, but just to say that, I'm, that for people who don't, again won't know, that you um, you drove round um, the Balkans um, for 10 weeks, I believe, wasn't it, in a, in a former communist Yugoslav, and not, what would have been a family car in the 70s, 80s, yeah. um, called a Zastabar. Exactly. Just a single, a solo lady travelling around post-war Balkans. Yeah, no, that's true. In this, car, <laughs> in this little dinky car. I've, well, I saw these cars driving around a little bit, particularly in 2004 when I first was out there. Mm-hmm. Less so by the end of my working stint, shall we say, in, in, in the Balkans generally. Um, but yes, it was, it was an idea and a dream to, to drive one of these cars. And, and when I finished working there, I was still very hyped up. It was a very intense period of, of my life. And I felt if I just came back to the UK, mm-hmm. at that time I was actually living in in Strasbourg, so I was living between Strasbourg and and then having long stints in in, in um, Pristina. In, in okay, Pristina. that's because of the because you, of the you're working for the European Council with Council this project, of Council of Europe, yeah, sorry, yeah. In, who obviously based in Strasbourg. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew I wasn't ready to to come away from it, and I felt that I hadn't had a proper, I didn't have a proper understanding of life outside of working within an international environment within the Balkans. And I thought the only way I could do that was to drive an, drive an old Yugoslav car <laughs> where I probably wouldn't be noticed because there were a lot, quite a lot of them on the road um, and just drive around uh, inconspicuously. However, that, would, <laughs> that turned out not to be the case because it turned out that these little cars don't actually go beyond the boundaries of their own countries, well, even even their own little communities. And there I was driving one around the Balkans, so I became actually a, a figure of, of hilarity and um, curiosity, curiosity as well, that I was travelling around in, in mm-hmm. this car. But it did give me an experience and an, um, a, a better understanding of the Balkan people outside of working in this intense environment and for that I, I was I was so glad I did that because again it was a humbling experience but I had and do have a much better understanding of the people and what a wonderful part of the world 
it is beyond its politics and, mm-hmm. and war and, and the general stereotypical expressions that people have around what the Balkans is about. People go there on holiday, particularly to the coast, but it's actually, I was inland a lot, and that's where you see amazing lives, very, very humble lives, people living off the land. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's very, um, it's eye-opening, but it's um, it's also, it, it takes you back almost to a, to a world that you almost thought didn't exist anymore. If that makes sense. <laughs> a book came out of it, uh, Driving Tito, and so it, it was on. Yeah, yes, it was <laughs> a, yeah okay, but it was a rich experience. Definitely, yeah. Yes. And you know that comes through. In, we in must the book. go one day. One day. We'll yes. Go well, we will try and find your your car. <laughs> Maybe that's your book two. If or, it's still. Or book three, me. because yes, you said you're, you're processing the Balkans still. Yes, but yeah. what, one okay, one final question relating to your time there. What's the highest compliment? someone could give you for the work you did there or just from your time there um crikey a smile i think a smile a smile a smile of a smile between strangers Mm -hmm. a smile of pleasure on people's faces when they see something's been accomplished it was the simple things that for me was the biggest compliment from local people, from people that I couldn't necessarily communicate with verbally, but a smile said so much more that <laughs> I have many memories of certain things that, that happened that the reward and the biggest compliment to me was seeing the smile smiles on people's faces. Yeah. Wow. So we're back in the kitchen for part two we've got a glass of wine so hopefully we're a bit more relaxed this evening um, to find out um, more about your travels and specifically I'm interested in your travels around the Balkans I know something about because of the book the story created a lot more questions in my mind I guess the Balkans you know conjures up different images for different people for me I think of I thought Yugoslavia, when neighbours used to go on holiday to Yugoslavia, but then obviously there was the war, obviously left what you knew in London and the career to, to go to a macho world, is that fair to say? And, how, and how, how did that feel? That's a very good question. It's a very big question as well. Sorry, yes. So I think, well, initially, uh, I mean, becoming a building surveyor, particularly in conservation, the last place in the world I expected to end up was the Balkans, but an opportunity arose and um, at the time very naively I applied for the job there not really understanding the full extent of what I was entering into in terms of the post-conflict situation and all that entails and how cultural heritage as a result is is very much becomes a very political subject too which thinking about it is through World War One, World War Two, you would always, uh, you know, well, the monuments for the churches or cathedrals or bridges were were bombed and, and attacked, and it, it was always always seen as an attack of your cultural heritage. So, going out to this region, totally unaware and, and not very, how should I put it, not familiar with mm-hmm. with um, Byzantine churches or the mosques from fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth century. That, that was one side of it. Uh, but I, not only was I going into a world that's very um, macho, shall we say, but interestingly, there were a lot of women who held 
high, quite high positions within the ministries. So I was not alone, really. And in fact, it was more surprising to see that there than, and I saw more of it there than I had done in this country, in, in the same field, shall we say. Interesting. So although I, initially I was very much managing a, a situation and a project that was with architects from, from different backgrounds and, and all male-dominated. Because of the political situation, people, representations from different parties would change. And, and then suddenly it would become half and half women, half male, half female. And then at one point it was actually almost all women. So it, it changed. So the, the dynamics changed with that. Uh, and each had their, their challenges. But I don't think it really... I mean, I was there to do a job and I took it very much from a very practical building surveying point of view <laughs> and tried to just keep politics out of it and, and just try to do what I could do based on the experience I had and using the experience and the experiences of the people around me because they knew a lot more than I did. I, I mean, I, I knew the sort of European way um, of how to put document tenders together and, and get construction work underway alongside a team of people obviously but understanding the history and the, the dynamics behind it all was was totally new to me so we needed each other yeah. in a way I mean obviously we had we had many problems but we also we had many successes many laughs many cries but it was a very interesting process and particularly within in the international world with with other institutions involved that also was another dynamic which was quite challenging at times to, to deal with because I came in very specifically thinking I was doing a, a project as such. And that was for the Council of Europe you employed by? With the Council of Europe, yes, so I was employed by them. Running a project? Yes. Projects? So projects, yeah. Um, and I had a, my right-hand man, Francisco Montañez, who, if he's listening, hello, <laughs> was my right-hand man um, from Spain, a project manager, and he very much was the the technical coordinator mm -hmm. and project manager on the ground all the time, uh, dealing very much face-to-face -face with, with these projects on a day-to-day on -day basis, whereas I was more of a helicopter view of, of managing the process, the budgets, and um, and the architects, and the, the political situation. So, I mean, it was a very intense period of my life, something that I never thought I would ever be in a position to be doing and if somebody had told me that I would be doing that at some point in my life I would have said you've got the wrong person but in fact when you're in there you just get on with it and and it was um, a huge learning curve but a very rewarding learning curve and five years was for me enough it was very intense and um, there came a point within the project where I got more money for another phase of the, of the projects um, and at that point I decided it was time to, to sort of come out and let someone else take over from the start of this new tranche of money that had, had been, that was coming from the European Commission and from the Kosovo government as well um, to, for the next phases. And can so, you give us an example of one of the projects and uh, maybe a project that was particularly challenging for you? Um, well, we had in one of the, one of the towns in Kosovo, Prizren, a beautiful old medieval town had a main cathedral in the centre of the town, mm -hmm. St George's Cathedral, and it was also surrounded by little smaller chapels or churches, so we say one was up on the hill uh, in an area that had actually been destroyed by fire, 
Uh, there were there was a, a village serving village up there, and then down in the town there was another smaller chapel. There was also a hammam there as well, which was part of the priority list for for Kosovo. But I wasn't involved in that specifically to do the specifications. Yes, and then there was also archaeological sites in the countryside around Prisun and between Prisun and Pristina too. So the cathedral became one of the major projects that I was engaged with, and it involved a lot of people. Uh, we had Bulgarian engineer, we had technical team from both Kosovo and from Belgrade. And from the institutions, uh, we had wall painting specialists coming from Greece and from Spain. Oh, um, and then we had structural engineers and we had a UK engineer who came to give some advice. It was a full-on project. And then, of course, we had all the contractors involved. And what was the too. restoration work? And so how, the restoration had it, how had it was, been damaged? I presume um, it had been it damaged. Had been, yes, but it, Basically, it was a rebuild job. Uh, we, it had the four walls, but we had to rebuild the roof and yes. then the, the whole of the interior. Um, so it was, a, it was a massive project and involved a lot of cooperation. It was also, in the town, was also, it, it was the heart, a very secular town in the sense that it had the Orthodox Church there, it had the Catholic Church was there, it had the main mosque with the, the, the Mufti. And there was also a big population of, of people who, who were very um, very conscious that this was the, the centre, it was the centre of their, their city. So it was important historically as well to try and pull it together again. I mean, we had problems with, at the time, with the lead being stolen off the roofs <laughs> um, and materials going missing payment of contractors and, and all of this, but as you do in, in all, in all mm. projects, wherever you are in the world. But it, eventually we did make it a functional cathedral. There was also the main bishop's residence was there too, and that was done as a separate project, not by us, but by it was separately funded. Um, and there was also a little chapel on the site, uh, Runovich, I think it was called, I'm sure forgetting all the names now, um, which is a beautiful, small chapel with a wall painted ceiling so it was a, it was a lot of con- conservation work but it also very challenging in terms of finding the right materials what do you use uh, as well as making it a functional um, cathedral for for the future for people to use going, mm-hmm. going forward and um, i haven't been back in the last 10 years actually so i'm i would be intrigued to know how how it's going i will go go back at some at some point Maybe after the lockdown, when everything <laughs> opens up again, the world opens up and we'll all be on the move, that's for sure. <laughs> so, that, so, yes, I hope so. But So the challenge with that, well, lots of different challenges in terms of managing budget, theft of materials, and managing different institutions and p- politics, I guess. Yes, a lot of, a lot uh, of And you mentioned, obviously, you know, um, hierarchy of um, religion there as well. Yes, definitely. And, and also, you know, they're still recovering from a, a period of of unrest mm-hmm. um, from 2004, the, the riots of 2004 in Kosovo. And before that, the 1999, there was conflict. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of people in uh, healing. There was a huge healing process going on. And that was another element to it all. And initially, before any of the work started, we were very much under escort by UN forces and people, you know, escorting me everywhere with guns and I found actually that was more frightening and more overwhelming than, than actually the project itself. <laughs> so that was... You, there's the unexpected there. Yeah, it actually made me very wary. As you said, with um, UN bodyguards transporting you around, 
you're not in control of what could happen. Whereas the project, you're leading that project. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yes, so so there was those elements of mm. it of it as well. But it was I I was still in this process of, of um, kind of downloading my brain of everything that I experienced and, and learned from <laughs> yes. that. So it's an ongoing thing, and I I, know. Yes. And I think I will write about it all one day. Yeah. But it's some you keep some of it's to still promising to yeah some of it's still <laughs> quite raw and some of it's still very sensitive. Yeah. So it, it, it's being able to find the words as well without yeah. offending and, and also writing it in a way where hopefully people can understand. I mean, it, I didn't live through the war. No. I came afterwards. So You saw the aftermath. I, I saw an aftermath, which is very different to actually living through it. And one thing I suppose from not only working on the Kosovo project, but we, I was working on various consultancy projects around Balkans at the same time, was the... Yeah, that process of meeting so many people who were healing from and dealing with huge bereavement and loss. Mm. And that was very emotionally challenging at times as well and made me appreciate and also see bereavement from so, from so many different other sides mm. to, to a side that I had personally experienced bereavement. So that was also very interesting and something also that I'm still processing as, as a result. Well, it's interesting, as you say, that, you know, you're processing it still. And obviously, I live with you. And so, um, you know, I know something about that stage of your life, but only when you sort of, it comes out, you know, in snippets and or you, you, maybe you're caught off guard and you reflect. And I, I know it's still coming out there because, you know, I don't know all the story. And of course, I can never know all the story of your work life out there and, and, and the way that you engaged with the people out there and the different politics. But I know you've told me some interesting little examples of the people we had to deal with. And I guess the only thing I, I could compare it to, which again isn't the same in, in some respects, because you said you, you didn't live through the actual bombings and the war and mm, the, mm. the division of, of, you know, of different races, etc. It was just my, my grandfather who fought in the Second World War as a, as a young child, curious about war and battles and things, and held his medals, we used to say... He would never talk about the aspects of war, mm, mm. never as a child, even though me and my two brothers wanted to know. It was more kind of like the sort of the fun, jovial things, like a yes. character, a friend of his, or how when they're in Egypt, um, they used to bet on scorpions fighting, and these mm, things, mm. as opposed to that. So it's interesting. As I said, that's the only thing I can relate that to. And obviously, yeah, you, it will come out, as you say, when, when, when it's ready, but... Uh, I've always wondered with you then subsequently um, when you finished that job or gave you a notice and I think it was after five years did you say mm-hmm. yes roughly yes, yeah that you still wanted to stay in the region and you then went on this kind of madcap adventure <laughs> um, for ten weeks I did, yes. ten countries in the Balkans driving around in this Zastava car which if anyone's read the book Driving Tito they'll know about the Zastava car. But tell us about what was Zastava and why did you want to jump into this yeah. car and go on the Balkans after all, the, all this other work? Some people would just want to get away if they were, were wanting to process things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think I saw the car around the, the Balkans all the time I was out there working. And I heard that it was this Zastava. And it's this tiniest of cars. And they used to say that this is the car that, that everyone had a story to tell that either they learned to drive in it or their grandfather had one or they they grew up with them in, in the family and so in terms of a, a vehicle or a, or an object as mm-hmm. such 
you mentioned this vehicle and everybody had a smile on their face and everyone had a story to tell. And so when I thought, wow, this is just just incredible, I just was kind, of, kind of fell in love with a car. I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to drive one around? A bit like a Mini, I, and I suppose it would be very easy to, to actually find a vehicle. Yeah. But actually that process was quite hard. Wasn't it the equivalent of a Cinquecento? A bit, it, it is, it's not. like a Cinquecento, yes. So it's like the Italian Cinquecento, it was a factory in, in Serbia that made these vehicles. So they took the design and adapted it for the Yugoslavian okay. market, really. And the initial ones had doors that opened sort of outwards, a bit like the um, like a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. There, was. <laughs> no. there is a, um, a classic... Yugoslav film with with disaster when uh, okay. uh, uh, the names escape me at the moment. Yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, which surprises this... me, given the amount of times you break down in the book. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, well, precisely. Yeah. At that time, I thought it'd be no problem, and and I when I test drove a few of them, I realised actually this journey might not be as easy as I first thought it would be. But I eventually found power after, after several searches and um, set off in this vehicle, and one of my colleagues. He had a, apparently, I found this out afterwards, had a bet with his mates, a crate of beer. And they bet that I would, that there was no way that I would make it. So he was all the way encouraging me, come on, man, you've got to keep going. Well, I think so, that's one of the early parts of the book where all your colleagues were just flabbergasted, it seems, that you wanted to do it. Even the lady who, um, your colleague who you had to get, the, who had to buy the car on your behalf because you weren't um, a national um, right. and permanently <laughs> resident there. So she had to buy it and then you kind of she you did. know then she lent it to you effectively exactly we had to uh, but, but she just seemed sort of uh, very perplexed why would you want to do it and you know sort of think, was there something in the book this or something they can't even go uphill she said so what would you know she just didn't get that you wanted this sort of um nostalgic vehicle which i guess mm-hmm. represented mm-hmm. the balkans and Yugos, former yugoslavia to you yes yes I mean, now I've seen there's a, a Zastava Old Timers Club on on Instagram, and I don't know whether they're restoring more of them now, but at one point they were actually encouraging people to return them to the factory and they were being broken down for scrap. Uh, but yeah, where my car is now, I don't know. I hope it's still, I hope it's still in Macedonia. I left it with the lady who actually has the official ownership. As you say, I couldn't own it because I wasn't uh, a resident mm-hmm. in, in, um, in Macedonia at I had a three, I think it was three months sort of certification so I could just go and drive it. So I knew I had you know, quite a few months ahead of me. But I think at the time when I set off, I left Skopje, which is the capital of uh, the Republic of Macedonia, as it is now. And I was going up this hill and I was getting slower and slower and slower. And then the lights started blinking. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm about to, I'm going to break down already. And I haven't, <laughs> been, I haven't been away even half a day. <laughs> it's only been an hour into the journey. And I realized that I had totally misread the um, petrol gauge. I thought it was full, but it actually was running on empty. The first thing I had to do was try and find a, a petrol station to, <laughs> to to fill it up. And then, of course, I don't speak the language, or not well enough to, to, have, mm-hmm. a, to have a proper conversation. But people helped me out everywhere I went. Yeah, I did break down twice en route, but each time... You just... broke down more times than that. I broke down... A number <laughs> broke... of times. Yeah, I broke down in Greece, and then I broke down again in, in Bulgaria. Uh, and that one was quite a catastrophic catastrophic um, uh, breakdown, and I ended up staying in this village or uh, yeah, this small town, Samakov, for about three or four days, 
while it was fixed. I don't know how they found the parts, but they did. <laughs> and and then I, I managed to get all the way to, to northern Serbia. So I while I was crossing between Romania into into Serbia, towards Sugatica basically. What's it called? Anyway, and the, the guard came flying out of his hut. There was no one around at all. It was boiling hot. This is the other thing. I, I set off on this journey in August. And it was like 35 degrees, 40. it was stinkingly hot. And literally I was just sweltered. I mean, the only, only air conditioning was through the, was the windows, had to have the windows down. It was absolutely baking. And um, anyway, I arrived at this, this little border crossing between Romania and Serbia. And this guy, just he just like flew out of his hut going, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. <laughs> he couldn't believe that a Zastava with a Macedonian number plate had managed to reach his uh, reach as far north as, <laughs> as his little um, border control crossing. So there I was more concerned at that point whether I'd be allowed in because I had been doing all this work in Kosovo and there was a lot of, at the time, political unrest between Kosovo and Serbia and every border crossing that I did between, over that over into onto the Serbian side was an absolute nightmare. So I was and a plus bit your paperwork was a bit dodgy as well, given you didn't own the vehicle, I think. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, but the fact that I was so far north, he, he was more interested in the Zastavan. Great. And it wow. was just, that was, I realised then I had totally, I, I was totally un, unhooked from the whole international environment mm-hmm. and that work environment. And I was just a traveller and a tourist. Yes. So it, it, that was great. That made me relax. And I, and in Serbia, there was so many Zastavas. Uh, I felt like I'd come home to the land of Zastavas <laughs> as I travelled through. So through did, you feel, did, did you feel a bit more um, anonymous then in, in that car? That's what, I th- that's what I thought I would feel. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the opposite was true because the, the number plate gave me gave the car away that I was oh, far from home okay yes and then so so people would look in and they couldn't believe that this car was on the road <laughs> and so then because they saw the car then they would see me and they go what are you doing what was the how old was the car sorry it was 31 years old okay yeah so Gosh. vintage yes vintage, a classic car and and honestly so at some points like going uphill I could only do about 20 kilometers an hour <laughs> Uh, and I'd have to stop regularly because it would overheat. So the engine was at the back, a bit like in a, in a Beetle. So I'd have to stop the car, put a brick behind the back wheels because the, <laughs> the brakes weren't that good, and throw the back the back door of the, the engine door. The bonnet? In, in, no, no, the boot. Oh, the boot, which so was, it was, it was the engine was in, was yes. in the yeah. And, and like a VW. Let, it, let it basically cool down. Mm. Uh, so and there were quite a lot of mountains <laughs> in yes. the Balkans. So, so there was a lot of mountain and climbing, and uh, and in the end, because it it became an issue, I actually had to start rethinking my route around the Balkans to try and avoid <laughs> the steepest parts. Right. Because I knew I, I might not the car might not survive otherwise. The further I got, the more I re- I realised how fragile the car was. And I had to be very aware of its limitations, shall we say. <laughs> so here you are then, a solo female traveller in what I was insinuating, at least in my image, is a, is a is sort of quite a male world. It, as you're suggesting, maybe not as institutions, it's not so male-dominated. But 
you know, you're going through the back back roads, towns and villages, not a, not to a lot of the big main cities. Yes. It was more rural. Was it more traditional in that sense? And what was it like? Um, I'll have a feel for that in the book, but mm-hmm. you rock up at some hotels, restaurants, and uh, there were times when you were just the only woman, it seemed, or, or person, at least person on their own, eating in a restaurant and not speaking their language. And did you feel intimidated or did you feel like you had to push yourself at the time and if so what what made you keep going on I think you know initially I was so concerned about the car and so excited to be on the road yeah I didn't think about it too much I I would I was very aware at certain places at cafes it's very male dominated and I knew that anyway so I got used to going into these spaces and yes it was always a bit nerve-wracking going in as the only woman because obviously you're, you're a novelty and, and you've got this car but I always used to try and get a table near the back of the room or in a corner or a place and I have my maps with me and, my, <laughs> and a book because the other problem was especially in smaller places I couldn't communicate with people and that that was something actually at the start I thought, should I should I have really gone with somebody to have a translator to help with the communication? Presumably you must have had a translator sometimes when you were doing these projects. All the time, yeah. Right. We, we, I, you know, it's an, an imperative. Dealing with locals and different institutions. Different people, yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, a lot, a lot of people did speak English, but many didn't also. Right. And also I didn't speak enough, well, hardly any of the Albanian or Serbian or, or Croatian or whatever, mm-hmm. um, to be able to to speak to them eloquently apart from saying hello good morning thank you <laughs> goodbye good day but yes on the road it, so so it was a similar thing that there was no way to communicate with people and unless they spoke a bit of german or a bit of french in which case i could get by with that and then obviously some people did speak english but the further inland i went the less i would come across that mm-hmm. so it was very much sign language and smiling and pointing and uh, and um, in one village the woman was so, frust- so frustrated because she couldn't work out what I was trying to say that we went to the local tourist office and uh, she went on the computer and we did we, we talked to each other through google <laughs> through a google <laughs> translation fantastic. which um and all I really wanted was something to eat you see <laughs> she couldn't work out what I was trying to she wanted to know specifically and I couldn't describe that but no I think at times it was a bit intimidating and I was very careful. I was very aware of being a single woman or solo traveller as it were. And a lot of time, although I had a mobile phone with me, there was no signal. Nobody yes. knew where I was. So in some ways it was intrepid in some ways, exhilarating in others, a bit freaky and scary mm. at times. But generally speaking, it was just... It was great. It was liberating, and it just gave me an insight into a, um, a world that mm. I hadn't been able to experience while I had been working in an in uh, with an international mm. hat on, shall we say, the Council, a Council of Europe hat mm. on my head, because it just didn't give me that opportunity. Although I did meet some lovely people in in Kosovo, local people that we ate well, and but. You were still, you were there playing, you were in a role and and there were certain things expected of you. Whereas once I had sort of taken that cloak off, I could be, I I was just Emma and I could... Just a traveller. I was just a traveller and uh, and that opened different, opened up other opportunities. Mm. And I think it was a very humbling experience as well because you realise how many people, particularly inland, they don't have much 
but what they do have they are so happy to share with you whether it's a coffee or plums off the tree or an apple or just a smile and a, a, a wave or whatever it is it was enough to keep me very much motivated in my journey and discovery of of that the whole landscape mm. and, and world so did you see the, the people of the balkans differently than what you saw them before when you were working um appreciate obviously there's different nationalities and and different countries i mean i think it it, it is different i mean it's because i i saw people i saw their kindness um while i was working of course of course i did but it was a different kind of intensity because there was so much pressure on on the work and it was so political and everybody had an agenda Mm -hmm. way beyond you know the, the role that i could play so but it was still so so it was good to have experienced that and understand the pressure that people were under there too but but also to get as far away from that as possible and to understand the context of the Balkans in a in a, a much wider way and the history behind it because it's the history is fascinating and I think it's also for me I found it very frustrating because I felt the more I the more I understood or thought I understood the more I realised I understood nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it is a very, very complicated yeah. world and fascinating and it gets under your skin. But there's something very compelling about it too that is very, uh, it's very heartwarming and the, and the people in the community, particularly in, in the smaller places and in the villages and the towns, are just, they're just beautiful people. They're just beautiful in the sense of their the way they are and how comfortable they are within where they are. I Mm -hmm. mean, obviously, there's other places that are war-torn and it's a disaster and it's very, very sad to see. And I'm hoping, you know, I did this journey in 2009, so already it's 10, 11, coming up for for Mm -hmm. 12 12 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping in that time that a lot will have changed in many of those areas. But... I don't really know. I mean, obviously, it, life goes on, and my <laughs> I've done lots of other things since, and I, and I'm sure some of them have too. But that that also again is the humbling thing is, as it, me with a with a born in this country in, in this country rather than there, I could go, I could work, I could leave. Some people could never leave. Yeah. They had no they had no ticket out, and and that's. That is that's humbling and also makes you realise how privileged many of us are that um, and to respect the privilege that we mm. have and hopefully use it mm. wisely. Maybe though, as you suggested, you know, some of the the, the simpler life might be the better life. Yeah. Sometimes it is. I and think. You say a smile, the lot, you know, a lot of smiles. You suggest. Yes. Yeah. And people, and, 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 the skills and the, yeah. people had. Okay. In, in just uh, whether it's in gardening, carpet making. The whole being world. ingenious and fixing Zastava exactly. 30-year-old <laughs> vehicles and they arrive in their little yes. um, one town got a little mechanic or whatever because you know there's a number of stories there and they were, they, were ingen- yeah, they were ingenious to be, with finding alternative parts and fixing it or sometimes the male bravado of actually thinking they knew how to fix the vehicle and they didn't well exactly <laughs> I know that's how you went on a bit uh, but also there was one, one person uh, a guy who actually I met in Belgrade he had worked partially he was a wall paintings expert and he said you know Emma 
It doesn't matter where you are. He was a what expert? He sorry? was a wall paintings specialist. Wall, okay, uh, so you had a connection with him, or you knew him from before. I knew him from before. So yeah. where I could, I did actually try to catch up with people in different places. So I met up with people in in Serbia and Croatia, mm-hmm. in in um, Macedonia, obviously Bulgaria too. Yeah, he said, Emma, it doesn't matter where you are with a Zastavar. If you break down, you have no worries because you can fix this car with a teaspoon. So I felt kind of, a, I think I felt comforted by that statement. <laughs> but um, I, I would have preferred not to have broken down, but my final breakdown was almost the penultimate day of my trip where the brakes failed after I'd just come through a very, very steep mountain pass and I was coming back down oh yes I remember uh, and Mm. I realized I I I got away with my life there definitely anyway I'm here to tell the tale you are (laughs) indeed uh, thankfully but that that leads me on to a bigger broader question about getting getting surviving something like that do you think you're a better or a different person because of your time um, and your experiences in the Balkans Oh, I think uh, I think that question about whether I'm better, I, I'm better at what I don't know, but but certainly. Or if you um, know better, or you've got a better understanding about life, maybe. Um, or are you just different? I think the core of me is still the same. I I think it gave me um, I think it gave me a, an opportunity to find out a bit more about what I could and couldn't do. I was put into a lot of situations, um, very challenging situations mentally that I had to overcome very quickly on the spot. Okay. Um, and that was, you do it. And you, I think also I was absorbing a lot of information and a lot about people's lives, a lot about the war, a lot about politics. And it, it was it was this, I almost felt like I was this kind of bubbling cauldron and everything was being thrown in and it was all being melted down. And, in there, this is why I say I'm still kind of um, processing it all because people, a lot of people, told me things that they didn't want anybody else to know about. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that yeah. was true or not, whether they did tell lots of other people, but mm-hmm. when people say that to me, I don't pass it on. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, in some ways, it was also very difficult to to pigeonhole certain information. Some some things, some stories have mm-hmm. stayed with me and haunted me a little bit. You know, I had I had some difficult moments while working there, and I think not growing up with guns and war um, and the terror around it. Even though I wasn't in it, I was still quite frightened by it underneath yeah. it all. I think. Yeah. So initially, when I came back, I on the first time I ha- actually had I had nightmares for about two months afterwards. And oh, she never told me that before. Yeah, I had a, so that was, and I think that was my my brain processing. I used to get mm. horrendous headaches too, mm. but but that all passed, and yes. then I then I went back for a second stint, and, mm. <laughs> and I think maybe, so I processed quite a bit then too, um, and I think it, it taught me a lot about institutions as well, and okay. the UN and 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 how systems work. Um, and about the larger community and how how to how to work with people from all different parts of the world, all speaking a kind of English, but everybody has their own type of English. Hmm. And how you find a way where everybody can understand one another without 
everyone getting upset by one's um, idiosyncrasies, uh, and that was that was really interesting to mm. to uh, work with as as well as adapt to. I suppose is is the way. So yeah, coming back and setting up a bookshop. I wanted it to be something about community as mm-hmm. well because I just appreciated too how much community was here in London that I hadn't really realised was here. I was in, I was so caught up in my own little conservation building surveying world in, in London which is um, very small really compared to the bigger picture which London is and my little bookshop, it wasn't the biggest bookshop and cafe in the world but the doors were open to welcome anyone and everyone mm-hmm. from, from wherever they were yes from all parts of the world and and i i loved that 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 was a wonderful experience and i think yeah there was no yeah anybody was welcome and you felt that that there, there was no sort of um i don't know for lack of a better term eliteness it was just there were books in there for everyone yes um, yeah. and obviously there was a focus on people and place and the, the bar was a and, cafe as a place to meet but I think anyone felt comfortable in there whether whoever they were I think well, I'm glad that you yes. were that yeah. I think that was that well, was the aim and I don't think I, st- I, was, I hung about for <laughs> so I must have felt comfortable there I, I think also it just it was more a case that it was also the case that if I hadn't had the experience I'd had in in the Balkans I probably would have been more reserved mm. And less, how can I say this? Less. I felt it was my my place, and everyone was welcome. Mm-hmm. And we had an ethos, and a, and and that was down to the staff at Travelling Food too. They were all wonderful people, and they came from different parts of the world, from Italian, Mexican, French, British. The customers were from yes. all, all over. There the were Londoners, so they're from everywhere. Yeah, Londoners, but London. also people, also <laughs> travellers. So, and from that point of view, it was open to everyone, and it was a very rewarding experience. And I'm so glad I did it because it was it was a dream that I'd had for for many many years that had it, that had gone from just being a bookshop in the traditional sense to something um, a lot a lot more. And um, yeah. The spirit like, lives on. Yes, it, well, it certainly <laughs> does. But it's um, different experiences and, and, and different careers that, that you've had. With obviously your temping administrational work earlier in life to getting qualified as a surveyor, taking it to the Balkans, and then having a dream to open a bookshop, which I know has been with you for a long time. And then obviously you're ready to do it after a certain period. Mm-hmm. In, in the uh, Balkans, but I think something so interesting about you is that you you do follow your dreams, and well, it appears that you follow your dreams. And once you've got an idea in your mind, like yes, I'm going to travel the Balkans in a, an old car that breaks down all the time. <laughs> I mean, are you different to other people? Do you think what 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 makes you um, push on like that? I'm not sure, really. I think sometimes I think I just have an idea and I just go with it. And I don't think about it too much. I just do it because I think if I. Sometimes you can talk. You can you can talk yourself out of something if you have too much. Oh, well, I can certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes when I just get so excited by an idea, I just go and do it, and I don't think about anything that can go wrong. I, I plan as much as I can in the sense. That I'm not going to be completely stupid mm-hmm. about it, but I just go and give it a go and. 
I think most things we do in life, you can do and you won't come to much harm. Mm-hmm. And if you do, well, you take that as it comes. But if you always think of everything that might go wrong, you just won't do anything. And for me, life's too short. I can't plan too far ahead. That's just me. I just, I just live for the day. Mm-hmm. You know, do I know what I'm doing next week? Absolutely no idea whatsoever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Probably no, well, not much I love that because compared, you know, we're very different in many ways. That you know, I have ideas and want to do things, and I think I can overanalyze them. Mm. The, the downside too much and, and um, that's my element of procrastination trying to find reasons why I can't as opposed to reasons why I should mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think yeah you've you've seemed to have mastered that to an extent some might say it's foolhardy at times um, going around as a solo traveller around the Balkans but mm. it hasn't impeded your life it seems no I, I think I think also if I think in your gut you know if you really want to do it or not yeah. if you're starting to analyse something I think that means that really underneath it all, you don't want to do it. Because when you really want to do something, you'll just do it. Well, you do. I do. Maybe we need to do a poll, get some, get some other people in to talk about this, because I don't, I don't believe I'm any different to anybody else. For me, life is, life is short, and it can be cut short. And so live it to the best that you can, um, because you only get one chance at this, and no one else can live your life for you. Only you can live your life. So it's up to you, really. And it doesn't necessarily mean going out and being adventurous all the time. You know, I can. I enjoyed last last summer just growing beetroot and, <laughs> and vegetable and carrots while the slugs ate them all. But but just you know that was an adventure yeah. too. You don't. Yeah. Well, to... Again, you threw yourself into that, which is which is great. Yeah, and, uh, I think adventures. I got to benefit from the ones that didn't get you by the slugs. <laughs> you <and> did. <laughs> and adventures. I think adventures start from your doorstep. Yeah. And it's up to you how far you go, and I don't think you have to go very far to have an adventure and just maybe get out of your comfort zone or just just to put a smile on your mm-hmm. face and just make you make you feel good about about life because there's a lot to be. There's lot to there is a lot to be grateful for, mm-hmm. and it's very, very easy to get bogged down in everyday things. But everyday things are yes, you ha- everyone has to do them, but save some moments. It doesn't have to be much to have a even if it's a little mini adventure, once a week. It just gives you a spark, and it just mm-hmm. gets you to meet people and talk to people in in different ways too, and. Just get outside your comfort zone yeah. sometimes. Well, it feels like a, an adventure, even though we know each other so well. That we, we have been having today, just delving back into your life. I've definitely learned some things which I didn't know about you. I've enjoyed talking about this. There's so much more to say. I hope it's interesting to people to listen to. And um, yeah, if they're interested in, in having a look at the book, it's called Driving Tito. I've forgotten what it's called. What's what, it called? Book? Driving what? Tito. Through the Balkan Backroads. With a celebrity. How did you forget? We had a, an afternoon in a London pub brainstorming. We did the n- title, exactly. Yeah, remember the coal hole on the Strand? Oh, that's right. Yes, uh, drinking a couple of pints of Guinness, I believe, when we were, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were going over that title. But, so, and that where, where is the book available, Emma? Online. You can find it on my website, travellingthrough.co.uk. It'll have the links, links to there. Or you can buy it through a bookshop. 
for all the usual outlets. So it order you can order online for Waterstones then yeah. and um, and in the States Barnes and Noble. Is it available? Uh, I believe it is Barnes yeah. and Noble and Amazon obviously. The, the well. other, yeah. It's also in Kindle version. Yeah. Um, so and Apple Books and all the other every kind of um, variety pack of <laughs> style you can it's find. It's out there, there's no escape. It is out there, exactly. Uh. So yeah, I suppose just going forward Obviously, this is this is a difficult time uh, for everybody, but the podcast is kind of something a, a work in progress too, and it's called the Travelling Through Podcast. And the idea eventually is hopefully that we'll find somewhere that that will will have a bit of a space that will carry on that travelling through spirit that we had in in Lower Marsh in in Waterloo for SE people one. to come in SE one. That's right for people to come on a retreat or to camp or to pick a book of a shelf. Pick a book off the shelf, who knows? But when we, mm. certainly when we find this place, um, it will, you, you will you will know all about it because we'll be we'll be talking. And the about podcast it. just remind us of the name and the best places to to, to listen to, to access the podcast. So it's called the Traveling Through Podcast, and again, you can find the links through the web my website travelingthrough.co.uk. Um, it's traveling on, with. Two L's. Two L. Oh yeah, travelling with two L's and through spelt the English way, T H R O U G H dot co dot UK. So you can find the podcast is on Apple Podcasts, it's on Google Play, it's on Stitcher, it's on um, a, a lot of the mediums, but you can you can access them through through the website too. Yeah. So and also I've got a newsletter, so if you want to sign up to the newsletter to find out more about what's going on, you can find the links to that via my website also. So all I've got all all points covered. Excellent. Well, I mean, well, I don't know, maybe a little drum roll <laughs> to say thank you, Emma Carmichael. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure talking to you here on this podcast and good luck with your podcast. Thank you. For those of you who made it to the end of this podcast, I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit about my life. If you've enjoyed it, please do share with your friends, subscribe and give us a rating if you can. We look forward to sharing a new podcast with you very soon. But for now, take care and thanks for listening. See you later. Bye. Bye.